You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 14. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Well, good morning to you all. We're moving right along through um, Calvin's Institute's Lesson uh, 14 uh, today. I came across this um, diagram recently, which I think is quite helpful to summarize the first ten chapters of Book 3, Calvin's View of Repentance. And uh, this chart puts it all under the rubric of union with Christ, which is certainly one way to see these, um, these chapters. Calvin begins with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the bond that unites us to Christ. So we have union with Christ through the work of the Spirit. And then justification by faith. This is not Calvin's order. Uh, he puts repentance before justification. But this is a kind of uh, logical order. We saw reason for why Calvin reversed that order. Holy Spirit, the principal work of the Spirit is faith. We're justified by God's grace through faith. And we'll come to that uh, next time in more detail. And then we have looked at uh, Calvin's doctrine of repentance, his word for sanctification, the race of repentance that uh, we are engaged in uh, throughout our lives. And Calvin defines uh, repentance as a true turning to God, which includes mortification of the flesh and vivification of the spirit. And uh, then today we look at uh, chapter 6 through 10, which is his uh, practical application of all of this in his uh, life of the Christian. And uh, these are the topics that uh, we'll look at uh, today. Uh, Self-denial, which is an inward look. Cross-bearing, which is an outward phenomenon. And meditation on the future life, which is forward and upward. Uh, the person who created this chart sees self-denial and cross-bearing as amplifying mortification of the flesh. And in some way, meditation on the future life is also being involved in mortification of the flesh. Vivification of the spirit uh, being amplified and illustrated primarily through meditation on the future life. So I think that's... Uh, a useful way to um, look at uh, the chapters uh, that we have in the beginning of book three, first ten chapters, beginning of book three. We'll look to the Lord in prayer, using again a prayer from John Calvin, and then uh, we'll look at uh, our word for today, book three, chapters six through ten. Let's pray. Grant Almighty God that as you constantly re remind us in your word and as you have taught us by so many examples, there's nothing permanent in this world but that the things which seem the firmest 
tend to ruin and instantly fall and of themselves vanish away. When by your breath you shake that strength in which men trust. O grant that we being really subdued and humble may not rely on earthly things, but raise up our hearts and our thoughts to heaven and there fix the anchor of our hope. And may all our thoughts abide there until at length. When you have led us through our course on earth, we shall be gathered into that heavenly kingdom which has been obtained for us by the blood of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I expect you um, enjoyed reading these chapters. This is one of the most... um, beloved section of uh, the Institutes, the chapter on the Christian life, which uh, begins this uh, material, was added in 1539. There was nothing comparable to this material in 1536 in the first edition of the Institutes. But in 1539, there is a a chapter uh, on the Christian life. And then in 1559, uh, that chapter was divided into five chapters. The 1539 chapter was the last of the 17 chapters of the 1539 edition of the Institutes. But um, when Calvin divided that chapter into five chapters in 1559, he then moved it from last and placed it after those five chapters after Uh, his treatment uh, of repentance as a kind of further application of the doctrine of repentance. This material, these chapters, have a separate publishing history and uh, were often among the earliest part of the institutes to be uh, published. There was a French publication of the 1539 chapter on the Christian life as a separate publication in 1545 and then an English publication, translation into English in 1549. That was the first um, English translation of of any part of the Institutes, the first uh, translation of the entire 1559 edition in English was in 1561, so really doesn't take too long for the 1559 uh, edition to be placed into English, but uh, for some 10 or 12 years uh, prior to that, a little bit of Calvin uh, was available in English uh, in uh, these chapters on the Christian life. Uh, Sometimes uh, these chapters are published separately um, quite recently. I'm not sure it, uh, that publication is in print today, although it possibly is, and um, is often given the title, The Golden Booklet of the Christian Life. So if you see that little book, uh, you can buy it, but you're not buying anything you don't already have because uh, it's taken directly from the Institute's. When we look at uh, the 1536 edition, there's nothing uh, similar to what begins to emerge in 1539 and then finds um, much fuller 
amplification in, in 1559. I think it's um, interesting to speculate on this for a moment. You remember uh, Calvin was in Geneva from 1536 to 1538. He spent um, two years, a little over two years, in Geneva working with William Farrell. His first edition of the Institutes had already come out. And then Farrell, in that dramatic uh, encounter in Geneva, um, urged Calvin to stay, to put it mildly, uh, and help him in the work of reform there. And Calvin uh, did that. Calvin's plan along with uh, Farrell, uh, was to uh, transform a city which had uh, become technically reformed or Protestant, uh, but um, still had uh, a long way to go, to transform that city uh, into a truly Christian uh, community. Uh, Calvin perhaps was a, a bit idealistic. He was a young man. This was his first church, you might say. And uh, he felt that if things could be organized and the people could be taught and a confession written and a catechism produced, uh, that um, that would accomplish the, the task of making Geneva uh, into a truly Christian city. But he failed in that, not altogether his fault, but... He and Farrell were expelled, and uh, the 1539 edition of the Institutes is then uh, written in Strasbourg uh, just after uh, Calvin has uh, left uh, Geneva. And uh, I think it's, it's possible to see this material on the Christian life uh, being um, developed uh, now uh, as... Um, Calvin realizes that teaching and preaching and catechetical instruction are not sufficient in themselves. There has to be something very practical, very uh, personal. You just can't expect to tell people to do right and expect them to do it. They have to be led, taught, and mentored. And uh, Calvin's uh, life of the Christian which we look at today, is a, a deep uh, reflection on the practical aspects of Christian living and the basis for that um, Christian life. In 364, uh, Calvin says this, 364, and it's really these words in the Institutes that have prompted my reflections on the biographical aspect of Calvin's life in connection with this material. He says, it is a doctrine, that is the Christian life, not of the tongue, but of the life. Repentance, doctrine, not of the tongue, but of the life. It is not apprehended by the understanding and memory alone, as other disciplines are. But it is received only when it possesses the whole soul and finds a seat and resting place in the inmost affection of the heart. So Calvin seems to be saying, you can teach other things. You can teach mathematics, and you can teach other things just by inculcating cognitive uh, knowledge. 
but uh, Christian theology is not like that. There has to be far more than that. It's apprehended uh, not by the understanding and memory alone, as other disciplines are, but it is received only when it possesses uh, the whole soul. You know, in some way, to be really uh, true to Calvin, uh, my exam in this class should not just be cognitive, what you remember about the institutes, but practical, and that is how your life has been shaped by the institutes. So maybe I'll give some thought to that, but uh, that is the way Calvin would uh, want to have this material judged. Well, certainly these chapters are important and uh, form, I think, a a great uh, classic of uh, devotional literature. John T. McNeil, uh, in the introduction in our edition, says that this material is balanced, penetrating, and practical. Another writer has put it this way, that uh, these chapters had an influence on uh, people of the Reformed faith more living, more direct, and more lasting than any other part of Calvin's writings. So, with that uh, introduction, let's uh, turn uh, to the life of the Christian Calvin puts it uh, before us in these uh, four chapters, beginning uh, with uh, chapter 6, which he calls the life of of the Christian. And basically what Calvin does in this chapter is to set before us the fact that Scripture provides a pattern of conduct for life. We turn to the Bible in order to know how we should live the Christian life to prevent, Calvin says, 361, our wandering about in our zeal for righteousness. We, we know from the Bible uh, where we should go. In other words, without the Scripture, we might have, as renewed people, a zeal for righteousness, but we would not uh, know the direction that that righteousness uh, should take. Uh, sometimes um, we refer to this as Calvin's third use of the law. We've already had a look at that in book two when Calvin discusses the law. And um, Calvin does say the chief purpose of the moral law is to form a pattern for the Christian life. So that uh, the law, uh, as contained in the Bible, uh, is an important um, part of um, the Bible because it, um, it not only uh, has a first use, which is to uh, show us that uh, we cannot measure up. And so in humiliation and in failure, uh, we turn to God. And it has a second use, which is to structure society and make possible human community, but the principal use, Calvin says, is that um, it gives us a pattern 
for righteousness. In this chapter, chapter 6, Calvin doesn't really talk much about the law. Uh, Here, uh, the pattern is um, more aptly described, I think, as the example of Christ. But there's really no conflict there. You can talk about the law, or you can talk about the example of Christ. You're talking about the same thing, as far as Calvin is concerned. But uh, when he comes to uh, 3.6, Uh, He focuses on uh, Christ as the one who perfectly kept the law and as the one who is our pattern and example. 3.6.3 says this, Christ has been set before us as an example whose pattern we ought to express in our life. So Calvin doesn't uh, hesitate to think of uh, Christ not only as Savior but uh, as example and to urge us to imitate Christ uh, in the actions and words and all the aspects of of our life. There's another uh, image that comes um, out uh, in these chapters. And uh, that is the journey image, the idea that we're on a journey, uh, the idea that as Christians we're pilgrims going from one place uh, to another place. And you probably noted this uh, all the way through these chapters. 3, 6, 5 says, Let each one of us then proceed according to the measure of his puny capacity. Calvin doesn't uh, congratulate us on what great progress we're going to make in the Christian life. So we have a pretty puny capacity. Uh, but uh, let us let us proceed and set out upon the journey which we have begun. Three six five. Three seven three. Paul teaches us to travel as pilgrims in this world that our celestial heritage may not perish or pass away. I think it's not really possible to know how much John Bunyan knew of the Institutes. He certainly knew the theology of the Institutes as a Puritan Calvinist, but uh, he doesn't he doesn't tell us about reading the Institutes. In fact, Bunyan had very, very few books. He did read Luther and a few others. And he read his Bible, of course, so he could get the, he could get the journey image in the Bible. But uh, this sentence um, from Calvin, Paul teaches us to travel as pilgrims in this world that our celestial heritage, Bunyan likes to call heaven the celestial city, may not perish or pass away. So whether Bunyan directly read Calvin or not, he certainly um, embraced the idea that the Bible and Calvin set forth of the Christian life as a journey. Uh, I've been working, as uh, you may know, on John Bunyan and his writings and have completed a, a manuscript called Grace Abounding, Bunyan and his books, hope that uh, that book will be 
published uh, before too much longer. In 3.10.1, there's another illustration of the same theme. The present life is for his people as a pilgrimage. So we can think of, um, of these chapters as telling us how we should engage in our uh, pilgrim life following uh, the example of the Lord who in his own life uh, set forth for us what we should do. So that's uh, chapter 6. Chapter 7, Calvin calls the sum of the Christian life. He wants to... um, He wants to introduce a theme here which he feels is important, necessary, and even essential as a kind of summing up of the Christian life. And uh, when we first um, look at this, it's pretty startling because you might wonder, how is Calvin going to sum up the Christian life? And he says, well, the first thing we have to talk about is self-denial. That um, it's not the way most people sum up the Christian life today. If you um, go to a bookstore and look in uh, the section on Christianity and look in the section on books about the Christian life, uh, self-denial is not an immediate uh, theme that jumps out at you. There are a lot of books on how to be joyful, how to be happy, how to be successful, how to do a number of different things as Christians, but uh, not too many books on a manual for self-denial. Sounds more like a Puritan title, a 21st century title. But uh, for Calvin, it's essential that we start with self-denial. I think uh, we need to, to realize uh, what Calvin means by this. He's, he's not talking about uh, self-hatred, or denigration of self. He recognizes that that God has made us uh, what we are, and as he will tell us, we are to be grateful to him for giving us what he has given us, and we're not to despise it, and we're not to hurt it, and we're certainly not to um, kill it in anger or frustration or weariness or anything else. We're to be grateful for the life which God has given uh, to us. So this is not a a chapter on self-hatred. There's there's an emphasis here uh, that Calvin wants to to make, but a person with a a healthy self-image which I think Calvin would encourage, although he doesn't really go into this much in uh, the way that modern uh, psychologists would, but a person with a healthy self-image can also uh, be a person uh, who has embraced the ideal of self-denial. So it's not self-image versus self-denial. It's self-denial as a practice uh, of, the, of the Christian life. And Calvin says when we talk about self-denial, we have to look at it in two ways. Uh, First of all, in relation to other people, and then 
Secondly, uh, in relation to God. When we think of uh, other people, Calvin says this, 375, now in seeking to benefit one's neighbor, which is another way of talking about self-denial in relation to other people, how difficult it is to do one's duty. Unless you give up all thought of self and, so to speak, get out of yourselves, you will accomplish nothing here. So, as we think of the other, the neighbor, other people, uh, Calvin says it's not uh, easy uh, for us to put other people before ourselves. Self-denial as we practice that in relation to other people, or we could say true love of neighbor, uh, which is the same thing, uh, rest on a number of points that you can note, add to the syllabus if you would like, add to the outline. Uh, one is, Calvin says, we should remember that we are stewards. That is, everything that we have um, God has, has given to us. We're not owners of what we have. We are stewards of what we have. And so in 375, he says, whatever benefits we obtain from the Lord have been entrusted to us on this condition that they be applied to the common good of the church. 375. God has given us what we have in terms of possessions, talents, abilities, time, whatever we have, not so that we can use all of that for ourselves, but that we can share uh, with the church here. Calvin uh, recognizes that uh, our self-denial goes beyond the church. and It goes uh, to all people, Christians and non-Christians. But um, he's specifically thinking about uh, the church in this Quotation. So that helps us to think of how we can practice self-denial when we remember that uh, what we have is not ours anyway. So uh, we have no cause to, to hoard it or to, uh, to keep it uh, for ourselves. And uh, when we remember that we're stewards, uh, then it, it should move our hearts to um, generosity and to helpfulness uh, to others. Uh, the other point that Calvin uh, makes here as to how we can love our neighbor, what can enable us to, to do that when it's so hard to do it, is uh, that uh, that neighbor is made in the image of God. So that every person uh, we see is created in God's image. I think uh, one of the most um, powerful sections of the Institutes is in 376, where Calvin makes this, this point. You might say he, he's setting it up this way. When you look at another person, first of all, you see yourself. 
That person is a person. I'm a person. But then beyond that and far greater than that, you see God because you see the image of God in that person. And here's how he puts it in um, 3, 7, 6. I'll read a portion of this section. Calvin says, Therefore, whatever man, person you meet who needs your aid, you have no reason to refuse to help him. And then he sets up some excuses that a person might give. Say, he's a stranger. Don't have to help him. He's a stranger. But the Lord has given him a mark that ought to be familiar to you by virtue of the fact that he forbids you to despise your own flesh. He's a stranger, but he's a human being, just like you are. Say, another excuse, he is contemptible and worthless, so don't want to help him. But, Calvin says, the Lord shows him to be one to whom he has deigned to give the beauty of his image, made in the image of God, even if he is contemptible and worthless. but made in the image of God. I was teaching the um, St. Louis uh, Men's Bible Study Tuesday morning for Dr. Doriani, who was taking a a brief uh, break from his study on James. And um, in connection with that class, I was reminded of a story about Francis Schaeffer when my wife was a high school student, she and some friends went to Switzerland and uh, stayed at Labrie. And uh, Dr. Schaefer, it was kind of the early days of Labrie, so he had some time to do things like uh, this. He could not do it later, but he took these uh, five or six high school students on a trip to Rome. And uh, Anne, of course, remembers that trip, remembers um, seeing the Sistine Chapel and St. Peter's and Spanish Steps and sites of Rome. But the thing that she remembers most is that one day when they were in Rome and um, the traffic was whizzing by as it does across one of those uh, busy intersections of Rome, there was an old man uh, with a cart uh, that uh, he was pulling himself with a kind of harness uh, that he had made. So he was like a donkey pulling this cart across this Piazza with uh, horns blowing and people screaming at him, and uh, he wasn't making very good progress. And everybody uh, from this group was horrified that he wasn't going to make it across the street. And uh, Anne said, uh, all of a sudden, Dr. Schaefer took off his coat, threw it to the high school students who were with him, rushed out into the street, moved the old man out of the way, took the harness himself and then began to slowly uh, make it across the street while the horns continued to blow and people cursed and shouted at uh, this man who was uh, holding up traffic. But, uh, you know, Schaefer often talked about the fact that, um, that nobody is junk. Nobody is trash. Everybody is made in the image of God. And so it seems to me that uh, he was putting into practice here uh, exactly uh, what uh, Calvin is, is talking about. Calvin goes on and says this, Say you owe nothing for any service of his. 
But God, as it were, has put him in his own place in order that you may recognize toward him the many and great benefits with which God has bound you to himself. Say that he does not deserve even your least effort for his sake, but the image of God which recommends him to you is worthy of your giving yourself and all your possessions. Now, if he has not only deserved no good at your hand, but has also provoked you by unjust acts and curses, not even this is just reason why you should cease to embrace him in love and to perform the duties of love on his behalf. You will say, he has deserved something far different of me, yet what has the Lord deserved? While he bids you forgive this man for all his sins he has committed against you, he would truly have them charged against himself. And to skip a line or two and read one more sentence, it is that we remember not to consider men's evil intention, but to look upon the image of God in them which cancels and effaces their transgressions with its beauty and with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. So, by the time we've got through that paragraph, we can't exclude anyone. Uh, Calvin has shut off all avenues of escape. Uh, Our neighbor is our neighbor, whoever that neighbor is and whatever that neighbor has done or not done Uh, to us. So that, 374, whatever man, person we deal with, we shall treat him not only moderately, but also cordially and as a friend. So that's one part of self-denial in relation to other people. The second part is in relation uh, to God. And Calvin says... Chiefly in relation to God. It doesn't mean that self-denial in relation to other people is not important. So we have seen it's extremely important to Calvin. But uh, our self-denial comes uh, chiefly uh, in relation uh, to God. Uh, Sometimes that point gets omitted today, I think, when uh, the church, this is more the, the liberal church subsumes the love of God under the love of neighbor so love of neighbor is very prominent love of God is uh, somehow lost in that to such an extent that faith has come to mean little more than seeking justice in the world and uh, we can we can get unbalanced uh, either way we can forget neighbor and just think about God or we can forget God and just think about neighbor, but um, Calvin insists that both are there and that uh, chiefly uh, it's before God that we practice self-denial. 3.7.10, he alone has truly denied himself who has so totally resigned himself to the Lord that he permits every part of his life to be governed by God's will. There's a passage in uh, 3, 7, 1. J. 
I think is one of the greatest um, passages in the Institutes and really one of the greatest passages in Christian literature. When Calvin says this, we're not our own, let not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We're not our own, let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We're not our own insofar as we can. Let us forget all that is, let us forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we're God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We're God's. Let his wisdom and will therefore direct all our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Some years ago, um, when uh, Ligon Duncan was a student at the seminary, he's now pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Ligon um, had those um, verses, those lines from Calvin printed. His, his family operates a, a publishing house, a printing press in Greenville, South Carolina, called A Press. And um, those were printed in, in beautiful gold and, and blue letters. And uh, he um, produced a, a few of those uh, pages, um, beautifully done, uh, with uh, Calvin's uh, words there, and um, gave one of them to me. So ever since then, I've had uh, those um, words uh, framed and uh, treasure uh, those uh, very much. Of course, it sets a very high goal for any Christian to be able to even uh, think we're not our own, we're God's, what that means uh, in our lives. I think uh, Calvin certainly attempted to, to put that into practice did not do it perfectly as, as no one could but uh, as Calvin says in 372 it is with God that the Christian has to deal throughout his life that expression comes up often uh, in the institutes and in other writings of Calvin uh, business with God negotium cum deo Business with God. It's with God uh, that we have to deal uh, throughout our lives. Just to illustrate this, uh, at one point in Calvin's uh, biography, you know when he was expelled from Geneva, he went to Strasbourg and was glad to leave Geneva that cross on which one had to perish a thousand times daily, he called it. And he remembered that uh, people there had named uh, their dogs Calvin so they could kick those dogs. And uh, when the invitation came to go back to Geneva, understandably Calvin was not too enthusiastic to uh, go back to that church and to that people and to that place. So he was reluctant uh, to do that. But here's a letter that he wrote uh, to Farrell. He said, As to my intended course of proceeding, this is my 
present feeling. Had I the choice at my own disposal, nothing would be less agreeable to me than to follow your advice. And what Farrell had said was, you ought to go back. You know, Farrell was the person that made him stay in the first place. And now Farrell is urging him to go back. And Calvin says, if I had the choice at my disposal, I certainly wouldn't go back. But then notice the next sentence. But when I remember that I am not my own, reflecting the words uh, Calvin had, had written, 1539 that I just quoted to you. This letter is 1541. So he remembers what he has written. But when I remember that I'm not my own, I offer up my heart presented as a sacrifice to the Lord, which was Calvin's symbol, you know, the heart uh, with the extended hand. And the words, uh, my heart, I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. So he's putting his motto into practice here. It's more than a motto. Therefore, there is no ground for your apprehension that you will only get fine words. Our friends are in earnest and promise sincerely. And for myself, I protest that I have no other desire than that setting aside all consideration of me, they may look only to what is most for the glory of God and the advantage of the church. Although I'm not very ingenious, it means very clever, Calvin says, I would not lack pretext by which I might adroitly slip away so that I should easily excuse myself in the sight of men and show that it was no fault of mine. In other words, I could create plenty of excuses for not going back to Geneva, and everybody would understand. But the next sentence, I am well aware, however, that it is, with, it is God with whom I have to do business with God. From whose sight such crafty imaginations cannot be withheld. Therefore, I submit my will and my affections, subdued and held fast to the obedience of God. And whenever I'm at a loss for counsel of my own, I submit myself to those by whom I hope the Lord himself will speak to me. So, you see Calvin in this letter really putting into practice uh, what he has been preaching. All right, the sum of the Christian life is denial of ourselves. And uh, then Calvin comes to another part of the Christian life, which he calls bearing the cross, which is a part of, of self-denial. Uh, here is self-denial. This creator of this chart calls that inward. And then cross-bearing is outward. So inward self-denial and outward cross-bearing. Let's think about what Calvin means uh, by cross-bearing. You see, not only is there their inward self-denial, but uh, there are the troubles and the afflictions and the trials of life uh, which are placed upon me members of Christ's body being in union with him this is union with Christ and we can't expect to be united with Christ and not to suffer because Christ suffered the members of his body being in union with him are made to undergo a pattern 
of humiliation, suffering, and persecution similar uh, to that which uh, our Lord experienced. These troubles and afflictions Calvin calls the cross. So, bearing the cross, part of self-denial, Calvin introduces uh, 3.8 by saying, beginning with Christ, his firstborn, he follows this plan with all his children. He treats his firstborn this way, he's going to treat the rest of us this way too. So we have the fact of, of cross-bearing. The fact of cross-bearing. We must pass our lives under a continual cross. Calvin talks about the Christian life being a hard, toilsome, and unquiet life. And again, these are, these are themes that don't much come through uh, today in books of the Christian life. Hard, toilsome, and unquiet life. And a life that could be described as a continual cross. I was reading a, a book, which I've just finished, about uh, some islands in the Minch, that's the sea between Isle of Skye and Harris and Lewis, the outer Hebrides, these little islands very close to uh, Harrison and Lewis. And the author, uh, who is the owner of these small islands, um, writes about life on the island, islands. In fact, his life, he's the only person who lives on these islands, comes and goes from his home in England. But he also visits uh, the churches and the families and the people that uh, are on uh, Harris and Lewis. It's very strong Presbyterian country there, mainly free church of Scotland. Very strict Presbyterians. In fact, I was there some years ago. Maybe I mentioned this to you and got into some trouble because I wanted to take a walk on the Sabbath. Seemed to me that was the appropriate thing to do, but uh, my host and hostess in the bed and breakfast where I was staying uh, were pretty uh, askance at the idea that I would be walking for pleasure outside on the Sabbath. And finally they uh, acquiesced by saying, uh, well, we wouldn't do it, but our, our children do that. Uh, they didn't expect uh, too much of me as an American, even though I was a minister. <laughs> My sanctification would not have advanced to the place where I could properly keep the Sabbath. But this book uh, that I was reading, the man goes, the author goes to a church, one of these three churches, and the minister begins his sermon this way. Some of you think that you're in this world to enjoy yourselves. You're not in this world to enjoy yourselves. You're in this world to suffer. It's the beginning of his sermon. And, of course, this uh, author did not think much of that sermon. And I'm not uh, saying that's how we ought to preach, or certainly don't introduce a sermon like that, although it did uh, get some attention, at least from this man, that he remembered it and, and wrote about it. But uh, what that preacher in Lewis or Harris said uh, was not altogether wrong, as far as Calvin is concerned. Now, Calvin doesn't, doesn't uh, 
depict the Christian life just as a life of suffering, but certainly a part of our experience as human beings and part of our experience as Christians, especially, is going to be uh, bearing the cross. J.I. Packer makes a good point, I think, when he says that it is noteworthy that whereas for modern church people it is experiences of suffering and affliction that present a problem. You know, for modern people, the big problem is, why does God let me suffer? Uh, why do all these terrible things happen uh, to me? That's a problem. There are a lot of books that try to address that problem. Packer says that uh, is a problem for modern church people. In the New Testament, however, the only thing that would confront the professing Christian with a problem would be the absences of such experiences. Because the Bible says, Christ suffered, we're going to suffer. The Bible says that we're to take up our cross and follow him. So, Christians in the New Testament, if everything was too easy, would wonder, where's the suffering? So, the theological problem for them would have been the absence of suffering, whereas the theological problem for us is often the presence of suffering. So, we should not should not uh, overdo this, and I, I don't want to give the, the, the impression that Calvin sees the, the Christian life uh, as only suffering and tribulation. I mean, where is joy, peace, confidence, hope? Um, it's all there. But um, suffering and affliction are not absent from the Christian life. We should not expect that we're not going to have to undergo trials as Christians. So we have the uh, fact of cross-bearing and then the, the importance of uh, cross-bearing. Cross, the cross can be borne, Calvin tells us, only by, by faith. And so only by believers. So in a sense, you know, suffering, problems, affliction come upon everybody, but it's only the Christian who bears the cross. Because bearing the cross is not just, oh, something bad has happened to me. Bearing the cross is my response to that and the way I handle that and what I do with that. I can either bear the cross or I can not bear the cross. So it's not passive, it's active, it's cross-bearing. It's taking up the cross and following uh, Jesus. Although in a, in a lesser uh, sense, all people uh, experience uh, the afflictions of life and can be said uh, to bear the, the cross, but uh, it's really only the, the Christian who truly bears the cross. In his commentary on Matthew 16.24, then said Jesus unto the disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Calvin says this, And although God burdens with the cross both bad and good, yet only they who are said to Yet only they are said to bear the cross who freely take it on their shoulders. 
For although a fierce and unruly horse will carry a rider, yet he will not endure him. The patience of believers, therefore, consists in willingly bearing the cross laid on them. So cross-bearing is freely and willingly uh, taking up the cross. Even the believer may uh, suffer in various ways, discipline for his or her sins. Uh, that's not that's not bearing the cross when something comes to us because we deserve it. We've sinned, and uh, we are being disciplined for that sin. Uh, that's not bearing the cross, although in a sense, as we respond to that discipline and profit by it, uh, we can see that as then bearing the cross. But as things come into our lives, and we can't always judge this, you know, Job cannot and Job's friends cannot. What is judgment and what isn't? So I'm not sure that... um, we really have a good way of knowing when God is disciplining us for something that we have done or laying a cross upon us in order to strengthen us, bless us, and help us uh, in our Christian lives. I think we could say it this way. A burden may become a cross. We all have burdens, but those burdens can become a cross when we willingly accept them and use them with trust and patience and obedience. Sometimes people have tried to discuss this point in this connection. Is a cross, is Calvin talking about, the cross, and is the Bible talking about a cross here, as being those afflictions and sufferings that would come upon me because of my testimony as a Christian. In other words, I stand up for Christ, I bear witness to him, and uh, persecution comes. It's not uh, so overt in this country, but... uh, there are forms, subtle forms of persecution that can come to a person who is uh, truly uh, bearing witness to Christ. Well, certainly that's a cross. But what about other things that happen to us? Sickness, uh, um, tragedy uh, in our family and among our friends, the misfortunes of, of daily life. I read in a sermon once a minister said, courage in the face of cancer is one thing, bearing the cross another thing. I'm not too sure that uh, Calvin makes that distinction or that uh, the Bible does. Uh, Certainly, as we suffer as Christians because of our Christian testimony, that is, is bearing a cross. But it seems to me that as we bear the problems and afflictions of life that God in his mercy and wisdom places upon us, uh, that too is bearing a cross. 
So I would not, uh, to me at least, make too much of a difference. It is uh, responding uh, positively uh, and spiritually uh, to whatever happens to us. Now, Calvin, of course, says God is not putting a cross upon us just to make us uh, miserable. Uh, but uh, he uses the cross to bring us uh, into closer fellowship uh, with Christ. That's not uh, automatic. It's not uh, that the more we suffer, the more spiritual we're going to be. Uh, because uh, a natural response, uh, even on the part of, of Christians, can be um, to become fretful, worried, um, disturbed, and uh, perhaps even uh, alienated from God and hardened in our spirit as a result of suffering. But when God blesses uh, suffering by his spirit, uh, then uh, true patience and uh, Christ-likeness uh, is produced uh, in us. You might say it this way, for the cross to be successful in recreating us in Christ's image, we must not only be stricken outwardly, but uh, renewed inwardly. There has to be that, uh, that response by which we learn to uh, trust in God, we learn to call upon his power, which alone makes us stand fast under the weight of afflictions. And we learn patience and obedience. We learn trust in God, and we learn patience and obedience. It's here that, that Calvin wants to be sure that we don't confuse what he's talking about with uh, Stoicism. Stoicism, you know, was the old Roman philosophy in the classical period that attempted to eliminate the feelings and the emotions so that whatever happened could not affect us. You know, if you have no feelings... You have no emotions. If those have been deadened or eliminated, uh, then joy, sorrow, suffering are going to be uh, the same. And uh, the Stoic ideal was to be so impervious to the slings and arrows of fortune that whether good came or bad came, uh, it would not would not produce um, a response. Someone characterized Stoicism this way. The Stoic turned his heart into a stone and called it peace. It was magnificent, but it wasn't peace. It's not a definition of, of peace. It is, it is rather magnificent to think of the Stoics with their grim determination to... Um, to free themselves from uh, earthly experiences. But that's not peace. And Calvin says that's not, uh, that's not what God is requiring. When we, when we practice self-denial, when we take up our cross, 
um, we are not doing it with the attitude of the Stoics, 389. We have nothing to do with this iron philosophy. The, the feelings uh, are, are very much there. And uh, the pain, the suffering, the tears, the emotions, uh, all of those are very much there. We don't rule those out. We don't eliminate those. But uh, we submit to God by saying we're not our own. Uh, we are the Lord's. And so with a quiet and thankful mind in the suffering, in the pain, in the tears, uh, we accept uh, what he has sent for us. Okay, we need to look at uh, the two remaining chapters uh, briefly. Chapter 9, Meditation um, on the Future Life. And um, there's, a, there's a chapter missing in this chart, and that is uses of uh, this present life, uh, which I think uh, if I was revising the chart, I would put in somehow, maybe over here, um, linked to um, mortification of the flesh and vivification of the spirit. seems to me that all of these points, self-denial, cross-bearing, meditation of the future life, uh, uses of this present life, and I'm not sure why this author of this chart has left that out, because that's certainly part of union with Christ as well, uh, could uh, illustrate both uh, parts of Calvin's definition of repentance. Meditation on the future life. Uh, in 3.9, Calvin has a very, very precise focus. And then in 3.10, he has another very precise focus. It's almost like his uh, discussion of the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament, where in one chapter he says uh, these two are really the same. And then in the next chapter he says great deal of difference between these two. We'll go back and review that, but uh, Calvin likes to do things this way, and he does it here in 3.9. The meditation on the future life, the Christian life is a life of hope. When we think of our crown, we are to raise our eyes to heaven. And really, you know, cross-bearing helps us to do this. It creates within us a, an eschatological perspective. It, it creates within us a taste for heaven, a longing for heaven. And the attitude that Calvin sets forth in 3.9 keeps us from putting too much value uh, on this world. If heaven is our homeland, what else is the earth? but our place of exile. So, 3.9, heaven is our homeland. This earth is our place of exile. We'll come to 3.10, but despite the sound of that, the kind of self-denying, medieval, monastic, Spirit, as some people have described it. Uh, Calvin's uh, perspective is not world-denying. It's otherworldly, in a sense, certainly. But it's not 
world-denying as uh, Calvinist history has uh, so amply uh, illustrated. Calvinists have been activists in this world uh, in so many ways. And even in chapter 9, Calvin balances things a bit by saying that what we experience here, which he can call contempt for this present life, But that must be balanced by his warning that we must not hate this life or be ungrateful to God for it. Indeed, we must use this present life. That is chapter 10. So, uses of this present world. And... The two chapters are are linked. It is the hope of the life to come. It's the fact that we can keep our eyes on heaven that uh, gives meaning and purpose to the life that we live here on earth. So it's not that these chapters are contradictory or have no uh, connection whatsoever. The hope of the life to come gives meaning and purpose to the life that we now live on earth how we must use chapter 10, how we must use the present life and its helps. The world is not only our place of exile, but also a sentry post. So you get two images here. Chapter 9, place of exile. Chapter 10, sentry post. Sentry post at which the Lord has posted us, which we must hold until he recalls us. The soldier doesn't have the right to decide how long uh, he's going to stay at that sentry post. The commander has put him there, and he's to stay there, however distasteful it might be, and however long and hard uh, the watch, but he's to stay there until the commander has recalled him. Calvin has no, no use for a person abandoning the place by suicide or in uh, a less permanent way, uh, the place uh, that uh, God uh, has set uh, for him. I picked up a book uh, in Barnes & Noble the other day on a sale table called Final Exit. It's written about 10 years ago about uh, assisted suicide. It was another um, famous book at the time and was on the bestseller list for good many weeks. But I was just looking at the introduction and the author said, if you believe that God is the master of your fate, read no further. Close the book, put it back down <laughs> on, the, on the table there. Well, Calvin says, God has put you at your place and you're to stay there until he uh, recalls you. So, Christian life, um, chapter 9, is a life of hope. Uh, Christian life, uh, chapter 10, is a life of responsibility. You know the song we sing, This world is not my home? That's chapter 9. This world is not my home. I'm just a traveling through. 
My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. That's chapter 9. But there's no, there's no verse in that uh, gospel song that, um, that comes as Calvin does to chapter 10. So I wrote one. Not great poetry, but uh, neither is what I just read. <laughs> chapter 10. This world is now my home. God gives me much to do. My sentry post is set down here beneath the blue. <laughs> so, chapter 9, place of exile. Chapter 10, place of responsibility. Sentry post. don't have time to talk too much about the rest, but let me just uh, mention what is there. Now, there's a double danger here. We can be too strict as we think about the things of this life, we can think about necessity only. And Calvin goes to great length in the Institutes and particularly in the sermons to say that God has created many things for us for pure delight, joy. That Calvin says, and we can see this as spring comes, that God could have, God could have made uh, the world without color. But for our enjoyment, he gives us color. It's not necessary for us to live to have color. Or God could have made uh, all the shades of uh, green the same shade. So we would have just green. But we have all these subtle varieties of, of green. Uh, in Ireland, they say there are 20 different shades of green. And if you look at an Irish landscape, you can, you can think that is true. The Scots say there are 20 different shades of gray because of all the clouds. And, all. <laughs> and those shades of gray are pretty, too. So God has created wonderful things uh, for us. So it's not necessity only. It's necessity plus delight. And um, people can be too strict or they can be too loose. There can be no limitations. They can be too... Um, too free in uh, what uh, they set out to do and so uh, fall into the trap of the lust of the flesh. Calvin says, on the one hand, there are those that are too strict. They rob a man of all his senses. On the other hand, there are those that are too loose. Uh, they have no limitations and fall into the sin of the lust of the flesh. Uh, Calvin gives us some principles that I'll just uh, note uh, as we close. How we can use this present life and its helps. Use God's gifts according to the end for which he created them for us. That is both necessity and delight. And there are references there you can look up in the sermons and the commentaries if you're interested in following this up further or read the classic argument and article by Emile Dumergue called Calvin Epigon or creator. Epigon means imitator. And the question there is Calvin a, a medieval person uh, kind of reflecting the asceticism of the monastery or is he uh, a person who creates something new appreciation of the uh, creation of God.
Second principle, recognize that God is the source of all good things and give him thanks. Third principle, learn how to go without things patiently. Fourth, remember that we must one day render account of all those things which were so given to us by the kindness of God. And fifth, each one is to look to his own calling. Wish I had more time to talk about uh, that, but... um, Calvin says God gives us a calling. He's not medieval in the sense that he thinks that we can never change that calling. My father was a farmer. I have to be a farmer. And my son has to be a farmer. And my grandson has to be a farmer. It's not true in Calvin's own experience. His his, um, grandfather was a boatman. Uh, His father was a kind of um, notary working for the bishop in their hometown of Noyon in France. And then Calvin was a scholar and a pastor. But uh, we, must, we must stick by our trade in the sense that we don't change abruptly and with improper motives. Remembering the dignity of work and the importance of diligence in work. All right, uh, that for today. Next time we'll come back to this very important uh, topic of justification uh, as Calvin deals with it. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.